Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. My name is George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to our live audience here in San Francisco and also to our radio and online audiences. And you can visit the club at www.commonwealthclub.org to hear about all the different events that we have, over 500 every year. Um, It's also my great pleasure to welcome back David Davenport, who has come to speak for us several times already and has a great new topic, how policy became war, public policy became war. You've heard about the war on poverty, the war on drugs, and so on. How did that get started, and, and where is that leading us? That's what David has written about, and he'll discuss it with us. Thanks a lot for coming again, David. Thank you. Thank you, George. Ladies and gentlemen, having uh, spoken and moderated before at the older facility downtown, it's a pleasure to be invited uptown to the brand new facility and how beautiful and exciting it is. And it occurred to me the best preparation for speaking in this room was having been a professor at Pepperdine overlooking the Pacific Ocean in Malibu. And the first day I went in to teach a class, it was a seminar, and everything opened right to a view of the ocean. And unlike you, the audience was not turned away. And so my first act as a new young 28- or 9-year-old professor was to close the curtains, <laughs> So, which greatly disappointed the students, but I think it was a, a smart move. Well, you're very brave to come and listen to an academic uh, talk about his uh, book. Um, I attended a conference a couple of years ago, and the uh, final session featured a federal judge moderating a panel of three academics, and I thought he had a wonderful introduction. The judge said... Uh, He said, you know, a lot of us live our lives, as Teddy Roosevelt said, in the arena, our faces marred with blood and sweat and dust. He said, and then you have the academic who's safely removed in his ivory tower, carefully watching the battle below. And only when the battle is over, does he go out onto the battlefield and shoot the wounded. (laughs) And then he closed by saying, and we have three excellent marksmen on our panel today, as he introduced his academics. Well, uh, especially in these days of of guns and gun control, I'll try not to shoot anyone. I may have to shoot a couple of historic figures, but they're already gone, and and I don't think any greater damage can be done. So if you think about it, um, we we do – we're aware that every day we live in a warlike environment in the world of policy. Um, Certainly we have shooting wars still in in many countries uh, in the world in which the U.S. and others are participating. Uh, I think less well-known and and less discussed are the wars that we have in policy here at home. Uh, We're still fighting an abortion war. Uh, It's in the newspaper almost every day, and we have been for 30 or 40 years. We're beginning a war about guns and gun control, I would say. There's a, a war on climate change. Uh, and then there are officially declared wars, uh, declared by our government, wars on poverty still going, war on crime, war on drugs, war on terror, war on energy consumption. Uh, and, and so we live in kind of a constant state of war. In fact, when I tell people we, I've written a new book and they say, what's the title? I say, how public policy became war. And they nod their heads. And I, yes, it has. It has. So I think it, the theme sort of rings true to people. And and in this book, my co-author and I, Gordon Lloyd, what we like to do is we like to, as Gordon puts it, go back to come back. We like to go back into history a bit, 
not just to understand history for its own sake, but also to see what we can learn and bring forward to our public policy today. So we, I love this quotation from uh, from Fred Hoyle, a British astronomer, who said, things are as they are because they were as they were. Uh, and so these wars today, I think we, we do need to go back a bit and see how all of this uh, began, and, and it may help us better understand and deal with it today. So I'm going to describe uh, the ideas in the book as kind of a three-act play. We didn't write the book exactly that way, but I think that's how it plays out. Um, we're going to begin in the New Deal. Uh, this is the third book Gordon Lloyd and I have written together, and they all begin in the New Deal. So we're going to begin again in the New Deal. And then we're going to look at the modern presidency, especially Lyndon Johnson through George W. Bush, I would say, and, and, and look at wars and emergencies in the modern presidency. And then we're going to close by looking at how we could manage the war metaphor. Our guess is it's a little unrealistic to suggest that the war metaphor will just go away, but perhaps we can, in, in our policymaking, uh, better manage it. So Act 1 of this play as we see it is is the New Deal with President Franklin Roosevelt. And, and in a way, he was a precursor, I think, of Rahm Emanuel's School of Public Policy. You may remember Rahm Emanuel, the chief of staff for uh, President Obama, famously said, you never want to let a crisis go to waste. It's an opportunity to do things that you could not otherwise have done. Well, obviously, the country has faced maybe no greater domestic crisis than the Great Depression in the 1930s. And and Roosevelt came into office with the need to address that. But as you go back and look carefully, uh, it seems fairly clear that part of what was also happening in the 1930s was that Roosevelt had a larger agenda than just fixing the Great Depression. Um, he had a new deal that he wanted to offer to America, and he wanted America to, to adopt. And so in, in a sense, I think the history, and, I, and we're not the only ones to suggest this, the history suggests that uh, he used the, the Great Depression as an opportunity to make a lot of changes uh, in, in our system of government, particularly the way government regulates the economy and business. Uh, and he did this by using the war metaphor. Um, uh, someone said to me recently, only an academic would make a big deal about a metaphor, you know, but, <laughs> but, but Roosevelt wisely uh, used the war metaphor and he used it in his rhetoric and in his speaking. Uh, he talked about uh, it is at his convention acceptance speech, for example, when he accepted the nomination. He said that this is a call to arms uh, that that in our campaign, uh, he said we will we are facing an emergency at least equal to that of a war. Uh, uh, he said uh, the great uh, cooperation of World War One is something we now need to carry over uh, into World War in, into this war against the Great Depression. He said, quote, we will have a great offensive against unemployment. Quote, we will move as a trained and loyal army with discipline. So his speeches were full of this war metaphor, sort of calling America to arms, if you will, and laying the rhetorical base for the kind of big changes that he wanted to call on the country to make. Roosevelt was also, we say in the book, the emperor of executive orders. We hear a lot about presidents issuing executive orders today, but Roosevelt set the record. Uh, he issued 3,721 executive orders. 
um, which is more than twice as many as number two. And our presidents today were shocked because they issued two or 300. Roosevelt is at 3,700, so he still has the record. Somebody said to me, well, he was president a long time. And I said, yes, but we did the math, and he also had more executive orders per day. So so any way you look at it, he used executive power and executive orders very powerfully. But he didn't just use them for small things. Often executive orders, I mean, really the purpose of executive orders is for the executive branch to execute what Congress has passed. And so most executive orders are are fairly ministerial or they are carrying out a piece of congressional legislation. Roosevelt kind of used them in a different way. He used them to set policy. Uh, and so, uh, for example, he issued an executive order on his first day declaring a bank holiday. Um, that had been studied under the Hoover administration. Many people thought it was not constitutional proper. Roosevelt said, we're going to have a bank holiday. Uh, and, and so, uh, and he created the whole executive office of the president, which we still have today, the modern presidency by executive order. So he was doing some big things, uh, creating the Civilian Conservation Corps. He was doing, like our current president, some big things with executive orders. So this is part of how he marshaled and got things moving. And then the other thing he did so effectively was writing Congress uh, like a skilled jockey. This is a phrase from uh, David Kennedy's wonderful book, a Stanford historian, about the Depression and the New Deal. And he said that Roosevelt rode Congress like a skilled jockey. Believe it or not, before Roosevelt, Congress basically drafted its own bills. Can you imagine such a thing? The Congress deb- drafted their own bills. They sent them to committees. They debated them. They amended them. Uh, they passed them with bipartisan support. Uh, FDR started drafting bills and sending them down the street to Congress and, and so driving things in that way. All of this was to achieve what Roosevelt said in his first inaugural address. If, if you ask people, what, what was the most famous line in Roosevelt's first inaugural address? If, any, if you remember anything, you remember, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But I would say the most predictive thing that Roosevelt said about his administration in that address is he said the, the American people ask for action and action now. Uh, and in fact, some of Roosevelt's advisors, interestingly, said Roosevelt didn't especially care what kind of jobs policy you had. He, he wasn't particularly concerned with what kind of approach you took to regulating banks. He just wanted action. He wanted to get these things done. And so Roosevelt created this kind of modern presidency, if you will, of action, of direct leadership uh, and, and, and embracing of the war metaphor uh, to enable the president to take greater um, action. So that's sort of act one, act the New Deal, action and action now. But then Later presidents, in in our view, seeing that that's a successful leadership strategy for a chief executive, um, began even more specifically to declare wars on uh, American domestic problems. And the the most famous, the first and the most famous of those, of course, was LBJ's war on poverty. And uh, if you were to study this, it's pretty typical of how these domestic policy wars developed. Um, Johnson had his advisors down to the ranch in Texas in December of 1963, about a month after President Kennedy had been assassinated. And Yes, he knew he needed to complete Kennedy's legislative agenda. That was his one of his primary goals. But he wanted something that would be his own. 
And so he told his advisors, he said, I want to do something about poverty. Uh, and Johnson himself had grown up in poverty. He'd been a school teacher with children from, from poverty. He said, I want to do something about poverty. Come up with some ideas. Well, at that time, very little was known about anti-poverty policy. Uh, you could argue that's still the case today. I mean, it's it's not it's a tough nut to crack. And so his advisors came and said, "Well, we don't. There, there's no real obvious approach that's known and universally accepted to this. So what we suggest is a series of small pilot projects." Well, if you know what kind of big figure LBJ was, the idea of small pilot projects didn't really work for him. And so he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm carving out uh, $500 million from the federal budget, and you guys get some programs going. And a month later, he stands up at the State of the Union, and he says, I am declaring an unconditional war on poverty. So it was – and unfortunately, it was really more rhetorical than policy-oriented. Um, it, it made for a great speech. It, it sort of rallied the government behind this project, but there really wasn't a lot of policy to go with it. Um, strong on rhetoric, light on policy, I would say. Uh, and of course, the war on poverty, as we all know, is still with us. Um, Ronald Reagan famously said in one of his State of the Union messages that he said a couple decades decades ago, we declared a war on poverty and poverty won. Um, and uh, I, I, you may not have noticed this, but a, a little over a year ago, the President's Council on Economic Advisors announced that that the war on poverty was going very well and was achieving success. And I'm thinking as I drive through some of our inner cities and some of our rural areas in Central California, and I'm thinking okay, I don't really think poverty is gone, and I, and I don't think it resonated with people. Um, what the President's Council of Economic Advisors did was they changed the definition of poverty so that they could realign the facts uh, to go along with it. But I think kind of intuitively we all know that poverty is still with us, which, as we'll see in a moment, is one of the problems. Most of these wars are not won, and, and therefore they continue. So other presidents continued right down that same road. We have the war on crime. Um, I don't know if you know which president declared the war on crime. Most people say Nixon, but it was, again, Lyndon Johnson, although Nixon kind of popularized it and did more about it. The war on drugs. Um, Jimmy Carter couldn't bring himself to quite declare a war, so he declared, quote, the moral equivalent of war on energy consumption. Um, uh, and uh, he basically was saying the same thing. We have to rally the nation uh, and and uh, uh, have a war on energy consumption. And, of course, uh, we still live very much uh, on a daily basis, having just flown on airplanes this this week a few times with the war on terror. So in in the book, we conclude there are five lessons that we think are pretty obvious about all of these domestic policy wars that presidents have been declaring and carrying out. First of all, they don't solve the problem. We still have poverty, probably even more of it than we had before. I've looked at all kinds of data. We certainly still have drugs, more of it than ever before. We have crime, more of it than ever before. We have terror, more of it than ever before. Um, and, and, and energy consumption is still a problem. On down the list we go. So they don't really solve the problem. Secondly, the, this is a little more subtle matter, but they block the path to better solutions. One of the problems comes when a president declares a war on something and the policy really hasn't been debated and figured out carefully. Um, well, then 
we all start following the president's lead and Congress starts putting funding uh, against it. And we appoint, in the case of drugs, we appoint a czar to, to lead the battle, a drug czar. Uh, and off we go. We're at war. But we but it's hard to formulate uh, the right the right policy solution. So in the in the war on drugs, for example, are we attacking supply or demand? Well, we didn't really know. Are, uh, by having a war on drugs, are we talking about warring with other countries that send in drugs? Are we talking about warring with our own people who use them? Well, we didn't really know. And it's just hard to have a really good, informed debate and really examine lots of p- fresh policy positions if you're in war. The drug czar is out there very busily leading. Uh, and, and so it does block the path to better solutions. Number three, they increase executive power. And I guess depending on how cynical you might be about <laughs> about the federal government, one could argue that that's actually the purpose that a lot of these presidents have, is that they take issues such as crime that were previously local, and they sort of federalize them, welfare, local and state, now federalized in the war on poverty. They grow power at the expense of state and local governments, and specifically, they grow presidential power and executive power at the expense of Congress. And and I'll talk more about that in a moment. Number four, they're negative and destructive. I mean, if you were going to have a policy metaphor, couldn't we do a city on a hill or couldn't we? You know, there'd be some better metaphors you'd like to use that are that are more positive. But but I think it's really debilitating to people that the, the, the government is constantly fighting all of these wars. And then number five, they never end. Every every war that's been declared that we've talked about so far, they're all still uh, in in full effect. So this is kind of what we learn about policy wars. Interestingly, we wrote this book before the uh, before the border wall debate. And I think at that time, people were very little aware of national emergencies. Were you aware, for example, that you presently live under 31 states of national emergency sitting here tonight? Um, the, the border wall kind of brought national emergencies more to the fore. But we call this in our book the close cousin of war because it has a lot of the same uh, effects as a war. It consolidates power in the president. It allows the president to run past the Congress, to run over the Congress uh, in in spending and other kinds of decisions. Um, it allows the, the president, as, as one author said, it, it's like flipping a switch of presidential power. And, and there's over 100 special powers that come to the president if a national emergency is declared. So we still live under 31 of them. Here's the list of presidents who declared uh, the most of these uh, national uh, national emergencies. So if you add that in to the wars, and, and some of these wars, by the way, are we've been fighting. Uh, the oldest one was was enacted by Jimmy Carter. So we have we're still in, under national emergencies for over 40 years that are that are more than 40 years uh, old. Uh, and and so this, I think, further fosters this notion of executive power and the president has to get us out of our mess and we're at war and we're living under emergencies and, and so forth. And of course, the environment of hyperpartisanship that we have in Washington, especially, but elsewhere around the country, uh, gives us a greater feeling of, of war. Uh, many times over the years, the United States Senate has been called the world's greatest deliberative body. But as we point out in the book, the world's greatest deliberative body hardly deliberates anymore. Um, they're at war. It's a, polit- it's a political show. Um, Congress is political theater. We don't want to take hard votes if it might cost us something in the election. 
Um, we don't want to disagree with our party leaders because they might run somebody against us in a primary. I happen to be working in Washington. The Hoover Institution has a, an office in Washington. Oh, maybe three summers ago, four summers ago. And um, it looked like Congress was going to have a serious debate about Syria, about what we should do about Syria. I thought, well, this will be pretty interesting. And then suddenly the next day they adjourned and they all went home to campaign for reelection. And one congressman was a little too honest. And he said, I think a lot of us wish the president would just bomb the place and tell us about it later. You know, um, let's let the president fight our wars. We don't really want to get involved in that in that sort of thing. But so the Senate doesn't deliberate. They hold things. Uh, they hold things sometimes in secret until they can get their 51 or 52 votes. And then they spring it on the Senate. And there's no debate. There's no deliberation. We have our 52 votes lined up. So now we're ready to go. And and we're back to the New Deal. We're, we're, we're voting on things people haven't even read. We're voting on things that haven't been debated, haven't been amended. Um, the most important legislation of the Obama years was obviously Obamacare, passed on a complete party-line vote. The most important legislation probably of the Trump era so far, the tax reform, complete party-line vote of the other party. So both parties engage in this without question. One study shows on party-line votes that as, as, as recently as the 1970s, about 60% of bills reflected heavy party-line voting, and today it's about 90%. So that's that's how much that problem has come along. So it's hard to deliberate uh, if if you're just passing votes, party line votes and undoing things by party line votes and, and by executive action. Um, then in the in Act three. So Act one was the New Deal action and action. Now, Act two was domestic policy wars carried on by presidents, national emergencies declared by presidents in Act three. Um, we talk about how we can manage the war metaphor. And as I said, we, we kind of start from the assumption that we're not going to be able to stop uh, the, the war business uh, and that managing it might be better. And so here we specifically, as I said earlier, we like to go back to come back. I'll give you a little insight on how at least we work as co-authors. So, you know, we're getting all exercised about all these wars and, and, and as only academics can, exercised about the war metaphor and so forth. And we're driving on our way to dinner together one night in Burlingame. Some of my Burlingame neighbors are here. So we're driving on our way to dinner and, and I'm driving and he's in the passenger seat, Gordon, my co-author. I said, so Gordon, if, if we're now basically operating out of wars and emergencies, if that's how we're making public policy... What was it supposed to be? What, how, how was it supposed to work? And he thought for a long time, and he said, public policy was supposed to be deliberation. That's what it was supposed to be. We were supposed to send good, smart people to Washington who would sit down and deliberate over the nation's problems and apply their wisdom. And if you look at the Federalist Papers, uh, it's all throughout there. Federalist number one, uh, the founders say, we call upon you, the people, to deliberate over a new constitution. 
So we, we wanted people to deliberate over a new constitution. Federalist 63, that we, what we want to find, the founders said, this is a great expression. We're trying to find the cool, deliberate sense of the community. We're not trying to win party line votes by wars. What we're trying to do in policy is to find the cool, deliberate sense of the community. Uh, Federalist 71, the, the cool and deliberate sense of the community should in everything prevail. Um, another big phrase from the founders is that government should be looking for and pursuing and following the consent of the governed. So this is how it was supposed to work. And the founders, of course, modeled that as well as taught it. Uh, if, if you've read anything about the Constitutional Convention, you know there were constant compromises in order to even have a constitution. Uh, and we, we parse some of that debate uh, in, in our book. And in and, and, and the state conventions, um, they'd go into the ratifying uh, conversation in a state ratifying convention, and it would appear that, that the Constitution was not going to pass and it was not going to be ratified in that state. But guess what? People actually changed their minds. They debated it, discussed it, and changed their minds. You can't change your mind today. You know, you'd be excoriated in 10 seconds on social media. But... They changed their minds and things passed and, and there was deliberation. James Madison, who's talked about as the father of the Constitution, probably had as many ideas rejected by the Constitutional Convention as accepted. And Madison's answer was, well, okay, we, if we can't do that, maybe we can do this. And, and so various compromises were, were carried out. So we have a chapter about uh, going back uh, to, to see how could we strengthen and, and restore deliberation. Um, t unfortunately, we're not about deliberation today. I already kind of previewed this one just a little bit. We decided that, that rather than the cool and deliberate sense of the community uh, from the founders, that the, the prevailing metaphor now in, in politics is, is the, the late Al Davis, owner of the Raiders, just win, baby. I mean, that's really what, unfortunately, policy has become about. And the way you can win is by declaring wars and, and presidents taking over policies, declaring emergencies, uh, doing executive orders, having party line votes. Uh, as I said, it's really become, in a sense, all about winning rather than uh, rather than deliberation. Now, last section here um, to give you a, a word of hope. Um, we we realize we can't close a book by just pointing out a problem and not doing anything about a solution. And so we decided to look at this. And, and we, we, ad, we admit that we've stretched this metaphor a little bit to look at Plato's divided line. I don't know. We both love Plato's Republic. And in, in the Republic, Plato talks about the divided line. And basically, the people are living below the line and they're following shadows and, and, and bad ideas and selfish and infighting and so forth. And then the philosophers, of course, like Plato, live above the line in the world of ideals. And, and those are the people who should be our leaders, the Platos uh, of the world. And so we thought, well, that, that would be an interesting way to look at solving this warlike problem. Are there some things we can do above the line? And here's where we stretch the metaphor a bit. We, we said, okay, above the line might be the government, the people trying to follow the Constitution and the Declaration. Below the line are the people. And at the line, we think, are some very important things that, that we'll, we'll talk about. At the line, 
the founders thought we needed all kinds of filters to make things travel well between the people and their leaders. Um, and unfortunately, these filters are very much under attack today because I think um, a number of people wish we lived in a direct democracy where whatever the people said goes, but we don't. We live in a we live in a democratic republic, and the founders intentionally put a number of filters there. We have a representative government, not a direct democracy. We have all kinds of constitutional structures that the founders thought would help deliberation. Uh, and so you can't have factions, as they say, run off in one direction or another because we have balances of power that are written into the Constitution and we have checks and balances. And those things encourage deliberation. They encourage people to work together. They're under attack today, but they were intended to improve deliberation. And then the founders also thought we would have a number of intermediary associations, uh, churches and, and the like. I, I probably changed that slide a little too soon. So that's the important work. Let me go back one slide. We feel like a lot of these filters are clogged, and a lot of work needs to be done to clean these filters and to make them more effective. And we and we follow through on that in, in the book. Above the line, Congress, when I was working in Washington, uh, someone gave me that hat. And uh, I just loved it uh, because really... Of the three branches of government, Congress is supposed to be the deliberative branch, right? Uh, and um, uh, in, in fact, when I taught the Federalist Papers to graduate students in public policy, uh, after we finished the book, I said, so according to the founders in the Federalist Papers, what were the most to the least powerful branches of government? Well, clearly the Congress, the legislature, was the most powerful the founders were concerned that there would be enough energy, is the word they used, in the executive, in the president. And they said the courts will be the least of the branches. Having neither the power of the purse nor the sword, they will be the least dangerous of the branches. Then I asked students, okay, make a list of how you think they rank today from most to least powerful. Well, there was, there was some debate about whether it was the president or the courts that were the most powerful, but everyone agreed Congress has now become the least powerful. So actually, I think it isn't pie in the sky. I think we could actually make Congress, <laughs> if, I, if I were more clever with my PowerPoints, I'd cross out the word great and put relevant. We could at least make Congress relevant again. Congress could claw back some of its war powers, for example, instead of just ceding all those to the executive. Congress could claw back some of its spending powers. And, and instead of just allowing the president to send down a budget and we sign it, Congress could actually claw back the spending power that it's supposed to have and, and on the treaty powers and on and on we could go. But that's not enough. We also have to make Congress deliberative again. They, they, this business of just holding things in secret and springing a bill and party line votes and so forth, we have to make Congress deliberative again. And I'm not saying that would be easy, but one small step toward that would be to, again, have powerful committee chairs in the Congress who actually hold hearings and allow amendments to be presented and say something has to say in a committee for X period of time. I mean, if you really wanted to go crazy, you could say a bill can't come out of the committee unless it has some bipartisan support. I don't think I'd go that far. But, I mean, there'd be a number of ways you could make – you might not make the whole Congress deliberative again, but you could make the committee process deliberative again uh, and begin to, to move Congress in, in a rather different uh, direction. 
You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. We think we, the people, also have a duty ourselves to move the country toward greater deliberation and away from executive power and war and emergencies. Um, We think civic education is, this is my number one issue. I'm giving talks and doing writing. I'm teaching high school teachers. I'm doing everything I know to do to try to work on civic education, which is a horrible problem in our country. Um, The last time tests were given, they were only given to eighth graders. And only 18% of American eighth graders were proficient or better in American history. And only 23% were proficient or better in government or civics. And only 1% to 2% were advanced in those subjects. And I could just go on and on and on. You know, the percentage of people who, uh, of Americans who could pass the citizenship test to become citizens of this country is perilously low. Uh, students think Judge Judy is on the Supreme Court. Uh, they think they think the Cold War caused climate change. I mean, it's just it would be funny if <laughs> it would be funny if it wasn't so uh, horrible. Uh, and so we in the country, I think, have our part to do in terms of of civic education and and civic engagement. Well, obviously, in a short period of time, I can't flesh out all of that, but it's a pretty short book, and and you could jump to chapter five and see what, the last chapter and see what we recommend. So, in closing, and then we'll see what kind of questions or comments you might have. Um, my wife always reminds me to give give some hope for the future, okay? <laughs> so here's just a little bit of hope. It's a bumper sticker I saw on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles one time. In big letters on the bumper sticker was, there is no hope. And below that in small print, but I could be wrong. <laughs> so that's uh, that's increasingly sort of the theme of my work. I'm a little in despair, especially about civic education and, and some other things. But but there are things we can do, and and I think that we the people have some responsibility. I think obviously Washington has some responsibility, and and we're hoping that that these ideas will help awaken us to some of the policy challenges that we have in our country. So with that, I'll open the floor, and George will come around and entertain your questions or comments, and I'm happy to respond. Thank you very much. I'd like to remind our radio and online audiences that they're listening to David Davenport speaking about his book, Public Policy Became War, when public policy became war. Your uh, slide with the red hat on it reminded me of the, my favorite joke uh, when, when Trump was putting that forward. There was a red hat like that, but it was on Queen Elizabeth <laughs> in England, and it said, Make America Great Britain again. <laughs> I didn't see that one. That's pretty good. I like, I that was, whoever made that one up, that was very, very clever. Indeed. So, um, questions? We are so far away from the founding fathers that it isn't even funny. Uh, incumbency is 92% of incumbents are re-elected. Right, right. And they spend at least half their time raising money for the next election. When are they going to deliver? Yeah, yeah. No, that's you're, – you're quite right. I think that the political process that sends leaders into government is one of the, sor- the sources of the problem. 
Um, we do suggest there are some fixes one could make in the book. I mean, uh, we could, for example, uh, we could prohibit legislators from raising money when they're in Washington, D.C., when they're supposed to be in government, not in a campaign mode. We prohibit them from doing it in a government office so they go down the street to another office and do it. But we could prohibit it altogether. Um, but you're right. We, we the people, have some responsibility, though, to – Send different people, I think, to Washington to, to, uh, one of the suggestions we make is that instead of sending people who are loyal to their party, which is kind of what we've been doing, we need to send people who are loyal to us, the people, and who want to carry out what the people want done. So it's, and it's going to take, I, I suspect it's going to take more statesmanship than it will insider baseball reforms. Um, Whatever else you think of John McCain, he wasn't afraid to, to stand up for statesmanship. And one of the things that impressed me is when he flew back to Washington with his cancer to cast the deciding vote about uh, repealing and replacing Obamacare. And then he shocked everyone by saying, I'm not going to support the repeal and replacement because we haven't gone through the right process. We haven't deliberated about it. We haven't consulted the governors about what's happening in health care in the states. We haven't had both parties at the table talking about how to solve the health care problem. It's just one more of these policy wars. So I think I think we the people have to vote for some more people like that. That it's going to take some statesmanship. One of the I won't go any further on this, but you know nowadays if if groups get together in Congress on a bipartisan basis to try to solve a problem, they're called a gang. It's the gang of nine or it's the gang of seven. And literally, they have to meet in a broom closet and and, and you know in in hidden in hiding. And you'd like to think, well, isn't that the main reason we sent them there? Isn't that what they should be doing on the Senate floor instead of hiding in a little closet, you know, as a gang trying to solve a problem on a bipartisan basis? So uh, you're right. That is part of the problem. Um, thank you, sir. Um, well, the definition of deliberation is a slow and careful movement of thought. Yes. And this rapid changes of the society. Yes. There is no time for it, I guess. And then the second issue uh, in your book, you really mentioned correctly that frequent elections really require to filter. Yes. And then you point out very clearly that, boy, 1787, we had one representative for every 30,000. And then again, that continues to be the case. We have only 435. Right. But that means that you mentioned very clearly that one representing, you know, uh, the number is huge. So yes. really, don't we need to have more election representative? I mean, increasing the size? That could be a yes. solution to um, that you really, in a way, you're... I don't think – I think that's a very perceptive question. And I, my answer would be this. I, I think, yes, theoretically, we actually need more representatives who are more beholden to the people than the current group that we have. And actually, I don't say this as a as – a, uh, I don't say this easily. We actually probably need more congressional staff also because the president – take the budget, for example. The president has this huge office of management and budget. Well, a small – staff of a congressional budget committee can't really take them on in some serious way. But I would hate to grow the size of Congress or the staff if it's just going to keep doing what it does now. 
So it seems to me we would have to couple those reforms with some other reforms to change the nature of the process. But yes, I think theoretically we need both more Congress people and more staff if we're going to make Congress great again. But I also want them to do something differently. Time for a slow and careful movement of thought, right? Right. Right. Yes, I, I, I don't. I don't think the people are so impatient about action. I think that the government officials create a sense of crisis. Uh, and, and in fact, if you do the, if you look at the studies, they suggest that although, we, you know, we have red and blue states and so forth, that, that many of us live in more of a purple environment. Uh, and, and on the local level, people can have thoughtful deliberation and discussion. Um, and so if we could just get Congress to model some of that. But I think, again, it's in their interest to rally their troops and to scare their people. Look what these awful people are, are doing or will do if they get in office. And so I think they characterize things in dire emergency terms and and cut off deliberation for their own political gain. That would be that would be my view. And I would just add, I, I have personally more hope for deliberation at the local and regional level than I do at the federal level. Um, and uh, um, there is a Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University that is training local and regional government leaders to listen to their people and to deliberate get deliberation going in their towns. And I think they're doing some very good work. I'm, I'm not a part of it, but I'm, I'm pleased with it. I'm the, the, the product of a mixed marriage. My father was a Republican. My mother was not. And um, I grew up in a house where we had deliberation every every Sunday. Yeah. Um, and we, we, could, we could discuss any, anything. And, of course, my mother was always correct at the end of the day because <laughs> we had to get ready for the rest of the week. If you wanted dessert. Right? That's right. <laughs> so it seems to me that for me – my experience is that there was a turning point and that a tipping point and that occurred during the the um, the, the approval or disapproval of of Supreme Court candidate Bork right at that point it seemed to me that the civility broke and then you know Newt Gingrich came out with the con- with with the contract with America and so so it was like they're never going to do this to us again right. and then they made Clinton's life miserable and then then the Democrats had a shot and they made Bush's life miserable. We've been going on like that now for uh, the better part of 30 years. Right. I wanted you to sort of comment on that. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with your premise. And I would add, I also think that some of the court decisions also led us down a more contentious road. I'm one who thinks that that social decisions like abortion or same-sex marriage and so forth – that those should be made by the people and their elected representatives, not by courts. And and I think in each case, there was a path of deliberation that was leading to change. Now, if I'm a woman needing an abortion, if I'm a gay in a gay relationship and I want to get married, I understand you wouldn't want to be patient with that process. But I think we pay a price for not being patient with that process, which is if a court does something like that, or as you say, if Congress does something like that, then there's going to be a backlash, uh, and 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 we're living in with a lot of backlashes now because of things that were done in that kind of anti-deliberative matter. I always liked the um, old TV commercial. You may remember it, where an auto repair guy comes out from under the car and he's holding an oil filter, and he said, uh, 
all of this damage could have been prevented with one $15 oil filter. And then his punchline is, you can pay me now hundreds of dollars of repairs, or you can pay, I'm sorry, $15 oil filter, or you can pay me later hundreds of dollars of repairs. That's how I sort of view this, that, yeah, you win the battle, but then you have the backlash and the war, and, you know, we're still fighting a lot of those wars. So... Um, so I think, uh, yes, I agree with that. And I would add courts to your list of, of causes. It seems that, as you mentioned, uh, so many of the votes now are totally one party versus another. It's becoming more like a parliamentary system where right. Right. party discipline is everything. Right. Right. And, it's ha- and it's working that way with appointments as well. The president can't even get the people they, right. they want in, the, uh, in their own government. Right. The incentive structure seems to be pushing them in that direction. What has to change for the incentive structure to make it so that bipartisanship at least becomes a possibility? The president gets to select their own uh, government and so on. And, and even Supreme Court nominations are dealt with in, in a more deliberative manner. Well, I, as I said, I, I do think a few rule changes would help. I mean, I think restoring power to committee chairs would help. I think uh, eliminating the filibuster and and the the kind of warring cloture filibuster rules uh, would help, um, but mostly I think it's going to have to be statesmanship. I think I think you know, but I think if they if if people in Congress could get a few bipartisan successes under their belt, that it could begin to swing things back. I have sort of a pendular view of history: things get bad, 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 and then. Finally, there's a – and so I think if, if we could get some, some reasonable Congress people working together on immigration or on gun control or on the budget even um, or on the declaration of war, I think we could, we could sort of get some momentum back in the other direction. So the, really that's all I'm looking for is let's begin to move the pendulum back. I don't think it's going to swing rapidly, but I think we could begin to move things back. Um, I'm – I just I don't vote anymore for what I think are basically party loyalists who are more loyal to their party than they are to me, me the people. So, I mean, in a, in a sense, we have some control of who we want to send back there. So um, I'm, I'm not suggesting it'll be easy, but I think if we could just get a few bipartisan successes, maybe a few little rule changes. Um, I I mean, it's not a very... I prefer free free speech and and all of the freedoms, and this isn't very freeing. But I would consider that you have to have some bipartisan support to pass a bill. Uh, it's, it's kind of a radical thought, really. But uh, we're in such a mess, you know. Maybe we need to do something a little more radical. That that you can't pass a bill unless you've got twenty five percent of each party, or what, I mean, whatever number you want to pick. So I'm open to more radical changes. You've mentioned the need for more statesmanship, and you also mentioned Plato's Republic. Now, are you in favor of his educational system for the leaders, which is to, to teach them mathematics for 30 years between the ages of 20 and 50 so that they'll speak, think rationally when they get power? Because that wouldn't, wouldn't hurt. Uh, <laughs> uh, Plato had a lot of bad ideas, too, in my opinion. <laughs> I used to give a speech called Plato for President where I exposed – People think Plato is just this delightful, you know, misty person in the past. He has some very radical ideas yeah. that, that people reject out of hand. But some of his educational ideas, of course, broaden, you know, broadened education, some economic understanding of how things work in the real world. Uh, those could be beneficial. But I, I think people should get to vote for who they want to vote for without a lot of requirements, if you will. Yeah. Well, you 
you worked at Pepperdine, obviously, ran Pepperdine. Um, and aren't the modern universities at least an attempt to be something like Plato's educational system for people? Well, they vary a great deal. Um, you have the great books colleges, for example, that I think are very much what Plato would have had in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then at the other extreme, you have sort of the multiversity where, um, although I think I got a very good education at Stanford, mm-hmm. never, nevertheless, sort of the, 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 cur- the idea of a curriculum there was Again, I don't know if the audience is old enough to remember blue chip stamps or S&H green stamps. They, you, you take a book at the when you enroll as a freshman, and as long as you keep putting stamps in the book, it doesn't matter what they are. <laughs> if, in the end, if you have enough stamps, they'll give you a diploma. So, I mean, you can still kind of get away with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's quite a variety. At, at Pepperdine, for example, there's almost two years of required curriculum to try to lay a strong liberal arts base. And that's pretty unusual. Two years is a lot. Um, but then after two years, you're freer to study other things for your major and so forth. So there's a lot of variety in how that's done. And some is done yeah. very classically and very in-depth. And then some is a little more superficial, shall we say. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, the idea, obviously, is to, in, in the great books is to get people to think slightly more sophisticatedly by reading people who wrote sophisticatedly. Right. But in, in the sense we were discussing earlier about uh, book discussions, that uh, people book discussions aren't that popular because people don't read the books, and then they don't want to go and say, well, I didn't read the book. But people are having discussions, and it's just a matter of, of do you think sophisticatedly about what it is that you're dealing with? You don't need to read any particular author. You just read, need to expose your mind to more sophisticated form of thought. Yeah. The, the most interesting thing I'm engaged in, I think, on civic education illustrates two or three of your points. One is one of the problems with civic education is it's become a political ba- battleground. Mm-hmm. So should they read this book or that book? Should they have this curriculum or that curriculum? Um, the textbooks are at best boring and at the worst very biased in one direction or another. The textbook in Texas is very different than the textbook in California, <laughs> shall we say. Um, and so I've been engaged with retraining high school teachers to work with their students on reading primary documents, mm-hmm. which are – Yes, the Constitution, the Declaration, all those things. But there are also speeches of the era, things that leaders said in the era. And it allows the students to get into the excitement of the debates of that time. And they do get into that. They, they find that very, much more interesting and exciting. And then they can draw their, draw their own conclusions rather than whatever conclusion the textbook author wants them to, to draw. So that's, to me, one of the more exciting ideas. And, and there's, a, there's a place called the Ashbrook Center in Ohio that's kind of taking the lead on that, and I do some teaching for them. And mm-hmm. you, you just see lights coming on as people get involved in these historic debates. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to read hundreds of pages, but they can read a speech by Roosevelt and a speech by Hoover and have a pretty good discussion of it. Mm-hmm. In, in finding old books and stuff like that, uh, uh, back when I was in my early 20s and doing research in this area, I found a whole collection – which was just like the classic books, you know what I mean, or something like right. that. But it was like 35 or 40 books all, you know, yep. uniformly bound. And it was all the different speeches on different topics right. from the time of the revolution through right. like the 1870s. Right. And, and people bought this like they would buy the, the, the World Book Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia and stuff right. like that. And, and you look at me and say, here's a book 50 years after the Civil War 
or 40 years into the Civil War, in which includes all the debate that led up to it in the 30s, right. 1830s, 1840s, right. 1850s, what people said on both sides. Right. And, you know, there is no way that that would sell. Uh, you know, now who, who would buy that kind of deliberative, you know, history? And, but it's fascinating because it really tells you how people were thinking. And I always, I always say when people nowadays are worried that we're not getting anywhere or that we haven't changed at all, I said, go back and look at what everybody was arguing about in the 1920s, see, on racial issues. Right. And, and, and people don't even raise the important racial issues that we have. They're talking about some subset, all of which is thrown out by right. now, you know. Right. But they're all talking about the different parts, and they speak in a way which would shock people uh, if they spent the time to read it and realize something has happened, something has changed. Um, I'll start by saying that I haven't read the book, so I apologize if this question is answered in there. Um, but what evidence is there that the claims that you make around the effects of policy wars uh, are true? Uh, they're kind of the five points. They don't solve the problem. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So we do we do try to document that on on each of the domestic policy wars. Um, so, for example, the uh, it was very, very difficult in the war on drugs to come around to a debate that's taking place today about the possibility of legalization or, you know, what do we do about the fact that we ended up part of the effect of the war on drugs was to have more people incarcerated in the U.S. than any other, you know, civilized country. So um, we're only now coming to have a debate that probably should have taken place, you know, prior to or at the time of the declaration of the war. Um, but, you know, again, once you have a drug czar who's out there spending money, you know, it's it's really hard to have that debate. So we do try to take each of them and we try to demonstrate what the outcomes have been. And I don't think very many people would disagree with the five outcomes. That, that doesn't make them right, you know, in and of itself. But um, clearly, they're all still going on, which is one of our five outcomes. Clearly, the problems have not gone away. Um, and uh, so we, we do try to document that, yes, in the book. Question. Um, so in 2018, we had a big change in terms of the members of the U.S. that were going to Congress. And in 2020, there's a big election kind of showdown that's coming up. Um, do you see this as being more polarizing or do you see this as being – Maybe a breakthrough that'll help us to kind of get things course corrected. I'm not very optimistic about that. Um, uh, I, I think that one of the best books, it's dated by now, it's from the 90s, maybe even, heaven forbid, the 80s. Um, I always thought E.J. Dion's book, Why Americans Hate Politics, got it about right. When, when Dion said, the reason Americans hate politics is because the political candidates come out every two or four years and they put on their battle armor and they raise their money and they yell and scream about things that most Americans don't especially care about. And then if they win, they go to Sacramento or to Washington and they don't do much of anything except raise money to be ready to go out, you know, sort of the next time. They neither address the issues that they talked about rhetorically, nor did they address other issues. Um, and I do think... I do think it's interesting. I, I'm I'm in favor of seeing a weakening of the power of the Mitch McConnells and the Nancy Pelosi's and the. I mean, in my view, we elected all of them. We didn't elect Mitch McConnell. Didn't get any extra votes uh, to be the leader, and so I do like the fact that there's some challenge, at least on the Democratic side, about the leadership. And I I, I take no joy in that. Which party it is, I just think it's time to. 
you know, challenge some of that party authority. So that is one ray of hope to me is that some of the younger Democrats seem to be willing to challenge the party leadership. And frankly, I'm hoping it comes over to the Republican side as well. Um, but the election process, I'm not as I'm not as keen about. Uh, I, I don't have any ideas of how to reform it, but I think we're in still kind of a difficult situation there. I'm not excited about the 2020 campaign the way I should be. <laughs> well, it's hard after the Democratic debates and all the strategy goes into how to position yourself versus somebody else. It's not about any of course. topic at and, all. It's and a, how to do a it in a 60-second soundbite. <laughs> yeah, it's a personality thing. And, in, and right. short-term versus long-term. It was even interesting to hear that somebody in, in the papers would analyze, oh, that was a good short-term yes, thing, but it might not be a good long-term thing. I was right. surprised that was even raised now. Right. Yeah, you also mentioned very clearly about the effect of lobbying. We had a, a presentation here about a week or so by ex-governor of Virginia. Yes. Right. And it was really a scaring right. uh, what he said. He said most of the Republican uh, representatives were bought out by NR, by, by the... Uh, National uh, Rifle yeah, Association. Right. So it was just scaring to hear that. I didn't know that to that extent from a from a, from a, from someone who experienced and he is there. It's not like an academic saying this. I mean, it's, it's no, really it's scaring. And, I mean, we have our own version of that. And I've I've done more political work in California than I have in Washington, and we have our own version of that with teachers' unions and other unions that. You'll wield tremendous power over over the legislature, and uh, so again, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of statesmanship to be willing to face that down. Maybe we can use our our digital knowledge, or our digital experience, to, to change it. One of the ideas that I had uh, back in 1980 for this partisanship, and, and uh, as you said, that everyone keeps winning over and over again, is after each census, instead of allowing the states to to make a decision, you you just hand the decision to a computer. And say, and say, you know, draw the shortest distance lines that will divide the state into the most equal number of for whatever it is. So that there's, you know, it can draw silly lines. The first argument against it is it would draw silly lines. But the lines are extremely silly now As that are being are, drawn. Sure. So you don't have to worry about that part sure. of it anymore. Yeah. You just, we, we just have to think of a few things because I think the game. One of the ironies, I think, is that both, and both parties are responsible for for. Uh, this is that they once the primary system got going for, for picking people, um, and they realized that they then gerrymandered in order to ensure that they were the ones that got reelected each yeah, time. Right. But then the part the primary became the crucial election and not the the main one because they knew that their party was going to win. And then they started. And primaries are very small elections. I mean, twenty percent of the people Absolutely. come, and so suddenly activists on their far wings. And both parties that were mostly middle of the road had now have two extreme wings. I really think it is the combination of gerrymandering and the primary parties, uh, primary elections being the one that's crucial. Yeah. It's very simple. I think the party should be talked back into it because they're losing out too. You know. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you. And so ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion.